0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit IAI.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.
2: Good afternoon ladies and gentlemen, um, welcome to the Emperor's New Genes. Um, Obviously the the debate is about genes uh, centering around the three billion dollar Human Genome Project which was set up to uncover the genetic causes of disease and much else and was billed as groundbreaking at the time. Um, However there's a feeling that despite frequent positive newspaper headlines some critics will argue that we've really not uncovered that much about diseases through the Genome Project. So will it eventually prove useful or are genes not the blueprint for life we'd imagined? That's the question before us. Um, To discuss this, I have with me to my right, Dennis Noble, Oxford professor, one of the pioneers of systems biology, um, Dennis developed the first viable mathematical model of the working heart. It, was it as far back as 1960? It was. 1960, it? yes. Um, and his books include *The Music of Life*, *Biology Beyond the Genome*, which I personally think is a wonderful book. And uh, Dennis has a new book coming out at the end of the year. Very exciting, um, from what he tells me. Um, (Laughter) Um, Anne Bocock, to my left, uh, Imperial Professor and Chair of Cancer Genomics. Um, and was first to use polymorphic human microsatellites to reconstruct human evolution, which was um, discomforted most of my my fellow scientists who like to make stories up about human evolution. And then you came along and said, no, that's all wrong, this is how it goes, actually. Um, and on the far left, Rupert Sheldrake, um, a biologist whose research into parapsychology and evolution led to the theory of morphic resonances uh, and expounded in his book, A New Science of Life. And I think it's fair to say Rupert has spent a pioneering life discomforting the comfortable. <laughs> I think that's fair enough. Many comfortable people have been discomforted by Rupert. Um, uh, what w- w- I'll ask is... I'll ask our three panellists to speak for four minutes on the main topic to put out their, their, their basic position on are genes not the blueprint for life we imagined? and then we'll move on to three separate topics. Um, and um, Dennis, can I ask you to start, If are genes not the blueprint for life that we imagined?
0: Yes, I want to start by saying one thing as a biological scientist, which I think is extremely important. We've all, as scientists, trying to understand living systems, benefited greatly from the sequencing of genomes, particularly the sequencing of different species that has given us huge insights into evolutionary biology and many other aspects of biology. I don't question that in any way at all. What I do question is whether it was able to deliver in relation to healthcare. And we knew the reasons for that way back in 1957, when Conrad Waddington wrote a very important book called The Strategy of the Genes. He drew a diagram too, he had genes down here as little pegs. He had the phenotype up here, that is you and me, and then he correctly drew the diagram relating the two, which was a diagram which goes through extensive networks of interactions in those biochemical, cellular, tissue and organ pathways. He realised what the problem was. And the problem can be illustrated by just simply taking a very quick calculation. 20,000 genes, give or take a few, found in the human genome. Go to Waddington's diagram and ask how many interactions could that produce. I've done the calculation. It's 10 to the power (laughs) 70,000. Alsace many years ago called these unimaginably great numbers. They are how unimaginably great the total universe number of particles is around 10 to the 80. There wouldn't have been time therefore through the whole billions of years of life on Earth for evolution to have experimented with more than a tiny fraction of those. The question then is how are we as scientists going to unravel all of that complexity? Now fortunately in a few cases that has worked. Going from genome level upwards has occasionally led us to some big insights. Um, But let me say this, you don't need me to say that the output from the point of view of healthcare is much less than the Genome Project imagined at the beginning. You've only got to go to the leaders of the Genome Project in the United States, Nature 2010, Venter and Collins both write in that issue of Nature, the output is disappointing. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis. Um, Anne,
2: um, what do you think? Are genes not the blueprint for life that we or perhaps you imagined?
1: Right. So um, I and many of my colleagues believe that a huge amount of insight has come out of the Genome Project and much, much more will come out of it. Uh, So the Human Genome Project was considered the equivalent of the moon landing to biologists. And as you heard, this was a partnership between academics within the uh, United States, um, funded by the government and also a private venture, a private uh, foundation. Um, The project was a huge success and the first rough draft was presented in uh, 2000 and then a more refined draft in 2003. The research was funded with taxpayer money, so it was freely available to researchers such as myself, and also to, academic, to uh, pharmaceutical companies, which meant that um, there were no constraints on use of the data, and that's been a huge plus for us. So the medical and scientific visionaries who planned this uh, more than two decades ago could see how genomics would ultimately advance medicine, and today we are seeing how this vision becomes a reality. Uh, knowledge is power, and expanding our knowledge of humanity's basic concepts, which in this case is the human genome sequence, is helping medical professionals understand and cope with a variety of biological enemies, such as cancer, uh, detrimental genetic conditions, such as Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease. There's also a deeper understanding of the disease process at the level of molecular biology, and this will lead to new drugs to treat disease. Other benefits include understanding the cause of rare diseases and being able to treat them. We can also identify individuals at increased risk of rare and life-threatening diseases, such as certain cardiovascular diseases, and intervene before it's too late. And testing a patient's genome can make a drug treatment more effective by minimizing the risk of prescribing the wrong dose. Prenatal diagnosis is also undergoing a dramatic change. A sequencing can detect fetal abnormalities in the mother's blood samples. And this does away with the need for invasive and potentially harmful tests for disorders such as Down syndrome. It's also becoming routine to sequence the genome of tumors. And within a decade, this will help to make cancer a chronic disease as opposed to an often fatal one. So in my opinion, this is a remarkable time. We can now clearly see the outlines of the impact genomics will have on medical care as well as some of the challenges that remain. And there's little doubt that the predicted benefits of the Human Genome Project, originally envis- envisioned more than 25 years ago, are beginning to arrive, both economically and clinically.
2: Thank you. Um, do you think it's fair to say that the Genome Project is likely to deliver benefits more for things like um, cancer than for things that involve complex behaviour?
1: So that's an interesting question. For the t- in terms of complex... Behaviour or even complex diseases, we're only now starting to really get insights. I think ultimately we will get major insights into those too It's just going to take a long time as you said there was so much data. There were so many genes and Understanding what all this means is going to take decades Essentially, but I mean as you see the benefits are being translated now.
2: Thank you. Rupert. What do you think Are genes the blueprint or not? No (laughs) Um, There you go. (laughs) (laughs) They never have been. Um,
3: I mean, I I don't have any problem with the Genome Project. I think it gives us interesting and sometimes useful information. I sent off for a 23andMe £125 sequencing. I was hoping to announce the results here for myself. They, unfortunately, they take six weeks, so I can't. So, you know, not against it, but I just think what we have is a problem of enormous hype and a completely unrealistic expectation of it. When I was an undergraduate at Cambridge in 1963, not quite as long ago as the model of the heartbeat in 1960, <laughs> um, um, I was reading biochemistry and Francis Crick and Sidney Brenner invited five or six of us from the part two biochemistry class to a series of evening seminars. They were grooming us to become molecular biologists. Um, And basically they said, you know, in ten years we've solved the genome, we've got the structure of DNA, we've solved the genetic program, how it works, the um, the coding uh, thing and basically they said the unsolved problems of biology are essentially development and consciousness. (laughs) They (laughs) haven't been solved yet because the people who've been working on them uh, were not molecular biologists nor were they very clever. They said but we're going to solve them within 10 or 20 years. uh, uh, Bredner said I'm taking development and Crick said I'm taking consciousness. (laughs) And and they invited us (laughs) to join them. Well I didn't, I wasn't persuaded by them about the power of this. But um, the, the exaggeration of the role of genes, the selfish gene idea, for example, a gene for things with selfish replications, genetic programs, these are all vitalist fantasies, in my opinion. The problem with molecular biology is not that it's mechanistic, it's crypto-vitalist. And by attributing these selfish properties to genes, or programs which are intelligently designed by human programmers, I think of fantasies projected onto genes. And I think they've led to an enormous distortion of priorities in biology. I do have a slight vested interest here because in 2009 I took part in a debate with Lewis Wolpert, who's a leading uh, materialist and mechanist, at Cambridge at the Science Festival on the Nature of Life. And Lewis said, um, within, he said, it won't be long before, given the genome of a, of a baby, of a, a fertilised egg, we'll be able to predict every detail of the ensuing child. And I said, Lewis, I, I, how long do you think that's going to take? I said, you said soon. I said, what, 10 years? He said, well, well, not 10 years, 20. No, well, maybe a century. And I said, well, that's a really, really long time. This is promissory materialism in an extreme form. I said, can we have... Uh, I said, I bet you uh, that it won't be possible uh, even with a simpler organism within 20 years. And he said, well, I'm sure it will. So we have a wager. It was published in New Scientist. The one thing we could easily agree on was the stake. We wanted something that would increase in value over 20 years rather than decrease like money. So it's a case of fine port, we paid half each. Uh, it's in the Wine Society vaults. Um, and uh, so the wager is that by May the 1st, 2029, Walpert said, given the fully sequenced genome of a fertilised egg, we'll be able to predict every detail of not a human, but at first he said, a chick. So I said, OK, Lewis, a chick. So he rang me a week later and said, ''Well, I've discovered a chick would be a bit too complicated. ''It'll have to be a frog.'' (laughs) And I said, ''All right, a frog, a chick or a frog.'' And then after another week, he rang me and he said, ''I I, I think even the frog's a bit too complicated.'' (laughs) ''It's going to have to be a nematode worm.'' Um, Elegans. And I said, well, that's a big step down. I said, well, <laughs> if we're going to a millimetre long worm, then at least we should spell out that to do this, you've got to predict the structure of every protein based on the primary structure of the protein, the sequence of amino acids, the, th- the three fold ter- folded up structure. And he got back to me about a week and said, can we just miss out the protein folding thing? <laughs> understand there's a bit of a problem predicting the ter- tertiary structure of a protein from the primary structure. I said, yes, there is. I mean, that's the reason why this isn't going to work. And um, so he, he, he said, well, anyway, um, well, let's just uh, leave it open... Can it be any organism? Uh, so the wager is by 2029, uh, it should be possible to predict, on the basis of the genome, the structure of any organism, uh, 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 any multicellular organism. Well, that's the wager. And uh, he left out epigenetics and all sorts of other things. Um, and. Um, well, by May the 1st, 2029, we'll find out who gets the case of port. Thank you, Rupert.
2: And, and I can attest to the veracity of that because um, I've heard it all from Walpert's side as well. S- slightly grumpier version, I have to say. <laughs> so, um, since we're, we're, we're talking all about genes, I think let's... let's uh, given the fact that we've heard that genes really are in some sense the blueprint for life and um, that they're not, not just
0: not um let's well, find well, out actually uh, james watson said that right at the beginning he said it's a template yes even then right at the beginning in 1953 he admitted it was a template and i think that's the correct description okay template and yeah. and as for
2: franny crick who said he was going to take consciousness about 20 odd years later he wrote a book in which he said uh there isn't any <laughs> <laughs> well he the said astonishing hypothesis <laughs> was pretty astonishing there was just wasn't any um that's what happens when you leave scientists to find something important <laughs> after 20 years and say, there isn't, there isn't any, don't worry. So anyway, um, what are genes and what do they do? Let's see if we can at least agree on what it is. So um, Anne, will you tell us what genes are and what they
1: right. do? So to understand genes, you have to understand DNA. DNA is of course the molecule whose structure was elucidated by Jim Watson and Francis Crick. Uh, it forms a double helix and what is DNA stand for, I spoke to a school last week and um, I was advised to tell them that it stood for do not ask, <laughs> <laughs> but it actually stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. Um, it's a very long thin molecule, we, every cell of our body has two meters of it, and um, it lies in every nucleus of our cell, and it's made up of three billion bases, which is the alphabet of DNA, and there's only four bases within, um, within that alphabet. So genes, are like, uh, genes lie on, um, within DNA-like beads on a string, and they're made up of different combinations of bases. Uh, so all the genes and the intervening DNA, we don't know, often we don't know what it does, is called the genome, and you'll hear a lot about the genome, and that's what we talk about when we say we're going to sequence the genome. Um, so the genome actually is broken up into 23 chromosomes, so 23 different rods. Um, We also thought of DNA encoding RNA, which encodes protein. That was the central dogma, and protein is what gives us our eye color and so on. Um, We now know there are genes that make RNA and they don't make proteins. Uh, These non-coding RNAs are very important for regulating genes, and you'll probably hear more about this um, when you hear about epigenetics. But ultimately, it's the gene that determines what goes on downstream. One other fact is that uh, genes, we've inherited one gene from our mother and one from our father. And genes can differ subtly between individuals because of the slightly different bases. And these are term mutations, a lot of these are term mutations. Some of these mutations can lead to disease, and others can have a more subtle effect on our appearance or behaviour, and often that's cumulative, and when you hear about the complexity, it's that complexity of multiple genes acting together. That is very hard to work out, but we are starting to work it out. so the point of the Genome was, uh, Project was to understand the sequence of the 3 billion bases that made up DNA and then find out where the genes lay. And later studies have looked into regions of DNA that actually regulate genes. So the Genome Project surprised us all by, sh- by showing us that we only have about as many genes as a fruit fly or, or a, a, a worm that Sidney Brenner was working on. And it's the regulation of these genes that's much more complex in humans that we're trying to understand. Also, only 3% of our DNA actually codes for genes. 3% is known to be regulatory. We don't know what the rest is. Um, That was called junk DNA, but but it may not be junk. Um, As Sydney Brenner said, you take out... You throw away the trash, but you put the junk in the attic. So, (laughs) you know, you want to know what... We still don't know exactly what that junk does, but I think it does something. Um, So it's also only during disease and ageing that we see alterations in the epigenome, and you'll hear about that. So epigenetic changes are not heritable, usually, and they're modified after birth due to the environment or genetically programmed. And it's the gene that sets up both the epigenetic alterations and the um, morphogenetic fields.
2: You you said that the genes... um they determine what happens downstream. Are you saying basically that the causality goes as the gene and everything else that happens flows from the gene, from the ba- that, if we use an up-down metaphor, from the bottom up? Is that, is I that quite am a strong statement? I
1: am saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, there are, you can have modifications to the DNA itself right. through environment, for example. So there can be modifications that way, and that's what you'll hear about with epigenetics. But okay. it's still the gene that has been modified.
2: Right. And yes. we have a lot less genes than um, hedgerows, don't we?
1: Oh, I, I don't know about hedgerows. The hedgerow,
2: I think, has a <laughs> vast number of genes. Oh, more well, than we plant,
1: do. plants are often polyploid, yeah. so they can have multiple copies. Right. Or and multiple we also, of the I think, 1%
2: of our genes uh, separates us from say, chimpanzees. So yes, we're all There's legs. a very different creature, yes. but there's 1% of the genes which apparently are responsible for it all. So, Dennis, um, what do you think? Is it all. Caused from the genes up? Is that, is that the only directional causality?
0: No, and uh, I've got two reasons for that. First of all, it is already shown in planarians that epigenetic effects can be inherited over a hundred generations. That's know a whole what are? the whole year. The, Sorry? The example of planarian, you said? Planarian, yes. What is it? it it's the inheritance of resistance to viral infection. Um, That was done by Rehavi and his colleagues, and it's published in Cell about three years ago. There are other examples by Joe Nadeau in uh, Seattle. So anybody who wants to email me for the detailed references can do so. This field is moving extremely uh, rapidly. Um, But let me answer the real question. I said no because... um, it seems to me that it was Descartes in 1665 that said exactly what Anne has just said. Of course, he didn't know about DNA, but he started off with the statement, it's in his Treatise on the Fetus, 1665. If I knew all the details, and this reflects uh, Lewis Walpert's point, if I knew all the details of what is there in the semen, I would be able to mathematically and with certainty calculate the behaviour of the individual. And it was Spinoza, in the same year, 1665, writing a letter to the Royal Society who exposed why that could not be the case. And the reason is very simple. Organisms are open systems. And they are therefore subject to an interaction between the environment and their constitution. Moreover, their constitution is not just DNA. Um, I've done calculations on the amount of information you can represent in the DNA. Others have done that too. It's very easy to do because it's such an obvious string. uh, You can represent it in terms of binary code if you want to. Um, But the cell itself is also a huge source of information. It also replicates. It does so by self-templating. It doesn't need a genome to do that and there are, incidentally, cells that can divide without genomes. That's just another uh, fact that is important. So I would say that the problem with the gene-centric view is it's, getting, it's omitting a huge aspect of causality. Of course the genes are part of causality, but so is the rest of the system, and the whole of that is inherited.
2: You, in your, your work you've used this, um, a different metaphor, you know, yes, the selfish gene metaphor which uh, it has been current for decades, but yes. you've often used this metaphor of, of, of um, music. Yes, that's right. Could you just use
0: that metaphor? Cause it's a useful one for seeing a slightly different view, yes, where the gene fits into that. Absolutely, and the reason I choose music is that music is a process. If I've got the score of a piece of music, I've got, as it were, the equivalent of the DNA. I've got what we can write down to make sure that one musician can pass the information on to another. But I have not got the performance. And it's only when the performance is done that you realise that the score is not the music. Just listen to different performers and you'll see the point. Mm.
2: Um, Rupert, what do you, um, are you more inclined to the musical score version, or the genes' blueprint? What do you think? How how do you see genes? The genes are templates for the sequence of amino
3: acids in proteins, or the sequence of bases in RNA. They're important. Cells need all those things. But it's a terribly one-sided view to say, well, this explains it all. It's like analysing this building, demolishing it, analysing the rubble, finding out the chemistry of the bricks, the cement, the mortar, the iron columns, etc. Of course you need that to understand the building, but the architectural plan would not be in this analysis. And I think that with organisms, um, the the attempts to explain development of form by switching on and off genes ignore the fact that form in organisms depends on something else. In a radiolarian, for example, a single cell which has incredibly complex uh, skeleton, I mean very beautiful structure, Uh, to the single cell, you can't get that just by switching on and off genes. Something else has to give rise to that form. That's why in the 1920s people put forward the idea of morphogenetic fields, form-shaping fields. Of course they depend on materials made by the genes, but I don't think they're controlled by the genes. Um, Just as the architectural plan depends on the bricks and the cement, if you have faulty bricks you'll get a faulty building. Um, But it's not that the bricks determine the building. Um, and I myself think morphogenetic fields, which shape form and similar fields which organize brain activity, uh, are inherited by a process called morphic resonance and influence across space and time. Controversial theory, I'm just, uh, it's a hypothesis, I'm not saying it's a fact, but it's an alternative way of looking at many of the factors of inheritance. Epigenetics provides another way of looking at inheritance
2: um, because quite a lot of epigenetic changes are inherited. Can you tell us what, what, we, what we mean by epigenetics?
3: Well, there are different meanings. Waddington meant something different from the current use. and um, The current use means inheritance over and above genetics. For example, um, a spectacular example a couple of years ago was with mice. People trained male mice to be afraid of a chemical called acetophenone giving them electric shocks when they smelled it. This was a classic conditioning thing so of course they were terrified of this smell. They then bred from those mice in some experiments taking sperm from the mice and the artificially inseminating females so they never met the fathers and looked at their children, their children were terrified of the smell of acetophenone and so were their grandchildren. So the article about this in Nature was called Inheriting the Fears of Fathers. Something about the fear to this particular chemical stimulus had been inherited epigenetically rather than genetically. Standard neo-Darwinism would say you've got to have random mutations for fear of acetophenones selected by population genetics over many generations. That's not what happened, something quite different. Um, Darwin himself believed in this inheritance of acquired characters and Darwinism, properly so-called, includes what we'd now call Lamarckian or epi- epigenetic inheritance. It sort of gives rise to a much broader theory of evolution. So I think this is, uh, the whole evolutionary theory is in turmoil at the moment, precisely because old style simplistic genetic determinism is no longer tenable.
2: Uh, and is it not tenable, or is it just that there are? other things than the purely bottom-up causality. Because right. you started off saying bottom-up causality. Do you want Well,
1: to? so, as a geneticist, I look at diseases that run in families all the time. And, it, and I look at just normal variation that runs in families. And it, if it's genetic and if it's in a parent, then it has a 50% chance of being inherited by any child. And that is entirely consistent with the three million or so variants that exist in the human genome. Now there, is this very, the, there are these very interesting stories about um, epigenetic inheritance and you know there are other stories too about um, children born to mothers or parents that were in famines in the war and how they have changes in the epigenetics of certain genes. And, and I find these stories absolutely fascinating. And we, as geneticists, try and explain them. But I think they're the exception rather than the rule. Um, I think that m- I, th- I, I don't think one can dispute the fact that the major characteristics and diseases, major uh, inherited diseases are inherited. And, and uh, uh, sometimes they're inherited to different degrees because not all genes are what we call 100% penetrant. So because you have a gene for diabetes running in your family, it doesn't mean you'll necessarily get diabetes. Because there's a gene for breast cancer in your family, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll get breast cancer. But we understand that because we understand that there can be multiple genes, there are also environmental effects. But um, for many of the common traits, we ought now look at both the environment and and the genes. But there's no doubt that uh, genes are playing a very important role.
2: Yes, well, I, I mean, I don't think anyone's saying that that's not true. It's just whether whether the strong claim that that we should always look for causality running from the genes up yeah. is really tenable, and that is where you started, and, and and that is what you'd read in any textbook and get yes. told in any yes. freshman yes. class. Yes. Do we need to move away from that? Is it unhelpful? I
1: don't think we should be moving away from it. I think we have to consider. Um, other things going on, as in as the example you mentioned, which is very, very interesting, um, and is telling us something about the molecular biology often of the organism.
3: Yes, I I think though that the the so-called missing heritability problem is really a serious problem. People thought that they'd be able to explain 80% of inheritance of most human characteristics. When tens of thousands of genomes were analysed for simple things like height, uh, it turned out that the genome could predict variation to about 5 or 10%. Uh, instead of 80% and the the missing inheritance, the 75% uh, of inheritance that wasn't explained by the genes for simple things like height is called the missing heritability problem. And this turns out to be true for many diseases as well, which is why the genome company 23andMe was put out of business temporarily a couple of years ago by the American Food and Drugs Administration for misleading claims, uh, claiming they could predict diseases with an accuracy that they couldn't. the accuracy of prediction was about 10% for many of these. Apart from a few rare hereditary disorders like cystic fibrosis and sickle cell anemia, the predictive value is rather low. And that's why there's been a kind of crisis about the missing heritability problem.
0: Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe, and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
2: Well, I I can tell you you want to take issue with that, but we shall do so in our second theme, which is, has the genome project been a failure? Um, Which is a pretty strong question. Um, I'm going to ask Dennis to go first and then come straight to you so that you can rebut these (laughs) things that need
0: to be rebutted. Dennis, do you think the Human Genome Project has been a failure? It's, a rather it's been question. a huge success for fundamental science, as I said at the very beginning. Uh, those of us who depend in thinking about evolutionary biology and about physiological processes have benefited enormously from knowing um, that score, if we can call it that. That's certainly true. In terms of output, I debated with 23andMe about two, two two and a half years ago. It's on a YouTube Um, video. In my presence, the chief scientific officer of 23andMe was not prepared to make those predictions. And the reason is very simple. You will get much better prediction of your future diseases if you measure waist circumference, blood pressure, (laughs) blood glucose levels. All the phenotype characteristics that you would get from a normal examination in a GP surgery, the predictability from that is about 70%. Just think about that. Don't spend your money on 23 and me.
1: LAUGHTER
2: <laughs> well, You heard it here first. <laughs> um, Anne. OK.
1: So... Um, Has it been a failure? No. <laughs> Good. So I think we're talking about a lot of different things. Um, the Genome Project has told us about the genes, and we can look at in individuals now with severe diseases, rare diseases, and ask, well, what's going on in these, in these patients? So f- there are a lot of people that have diseases where the disease has never been di- di- diagnosed correctly. And um, there's some really interesting examples of that. Uh, a woman in a wheelchair, a wheelchair from birth. No one knew what was wrong with her and they sequenced her genome and they found the cause and they treated her with an easy drug, it was a drug available for Parkinson's disease and now she's out of a wheelchair. So, and there's other examples, two twins who had these diseases from birth, you know chronic hyperactive <coughs> disorders, they sequenced them, this is what we call exome sequencing or sequencing there coding part of their genome, and they found a mutation in a rare um, protein that um, leads to uh, changes in uh, neurotransmitters, and so by giving them supplements for neurotransmitters, they again were able to treat these boys, and they're absolutely fine. So there are fantastic stories about um, rare diseases and how, and, and actually the UK government is spending a lot of money on sequencing rare diseases uh, and we're one of the first to do this. And this will again really help people with these really hard to diagnose, hard to treat diseases. So that I think is unequivocal. The issue that we're also talking about here is development. Now, as you heard, the development of the worm, it's a complex wiring diagram. The development of the human is much more complex. I think we underestimated how complex the wiring diagram was. And um, we are beginning to understand that wiring diagram, but that doesn't say that the project has been a failure because, because we underestimated the complexity. And then the other est- uh, discussion we had is about height or any co- what we call common disease, common phenotype, phenotype being appearance. And that's what we're all as geneticists, or many of us, trying to understand. So I work on a rare disease, or not a common disease, uh, psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, as long as a lot of different cancers. And for years, we have tried to understand the basis of this disease. When we started off, we had no idea what was going on. And as with many common diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, Alzheimer's disease, or even Appearance like height, it turns out that there's multiple subtle variants in the genome that lead to these uh, traits. So, for example, height, as you said, there's 100 uh, genes found now, subtle variants, that are associated with height. And we still can't explain enough about height. But we know within that genome that there are the variants that predict height. We just haven't identified them. Uh, The same is true with schizophrenia. You can look, um, people have done big studies now on schizophrenia cohorts and estimated that within the genome data that's available, there's, you can explain 80% of the predisposition to schizophrenia. We haven't identified it all yet because we need lots of cases, lots of computational power, um, but, it's, but the tools are there to do it. The same with diabetes. It's estimated now that we understand 80% of the heritability of diabetes um, using these approaches for look, to look at these common variants that we all have in our genome. So, I think, you know, there's, we're talking about a lot of different things. Um, and, but in order to understand all this, we had to understand the, the structure of the genome. And also w- the ramifications of this were that we started to understand all the variation. So there were other projects that spun off from the genome project. So the, the project to understand the variation, the project to understand the epigenetics right. and so on.
2: But is it then... Um Is it not so much that the the project has been a failure, but maybe there's been a slight failure of some of the more extravagant and hopeful claims that were made before we realized how complicated it was? Because, you know, it's it's certainly the case if you if you if your P53 gene is switched off, you're very likely almost certain to get cancer. There's a one to one relationship because you do not you do you want your P53 gene to work. (laughs) But then that maybe is not a a good model for everything else about us. Is it it a failure of expectation? I
1: I think when the Genome Project was... um, people were trying to get money for it. Um, (laughs) They would, you know, the the spin was this will have a great impact on medicine. Um, It's going to take time. And maybe it was oversold Mm. uh, initially um, because it's it's going to take a lot longer than uh, I think the public... uh,
3: Okay, Rupert, you look like you... Yes, well, I I mean, I think the Genome Project was grossly oversold. The history, of course, is that biologists wanted big science. They had physics envy. and um, (laughs) uh, Physics has big projects like Star Wars, (laughs) the Large Hadron Collider. And there was a debate in the 1980s about how biology can have big science. Yes. They had to have a project that would be worth billions to move biology from the status of a cottage industry to big science. <laughs> it had to be an idea simple enough to explain to Ronald Reagan. And <laughs> thus, yep. the Human Genome Project was born. And uh, I, I've, 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 <laughs> do you I've, recognize I've, this um, as <laughs> well? <I've>, um, <laughs> So, I have nothing against the Human Genome Project or any Genome Project. So the laboratories now sequence genomes all the time. Biology is drowning in genome data. They don't know what to do with it. They keep hiring computer experts to try and deal with bioinformatics. They've well, got databases <laughs> stuffed with this um, stuff. And, but my, my pro- problem really, my gripe with it really, is a complete distortion of priorities. I and mean, here we have, for example, in medicine, a huge proportion of our population are overweight and have diabetes, obesity and overweight. It, the whole world, it's a massive problem. This is a very common disease and yet because of this genome focus, the precision of control, the power that comes from sequencing genomes are to get, generate data, Rare diseases uh, get a lot of attention and expense and research. Common diseases like diabetes, uh, the simplest facts about nutrition are still in dispute among nutritionists. This is a seriously backward science. Uh, You know, they're still saying cut down on fats, high carbs are good. Other people are saying no, 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 carbs are all the problem, sugar and stuff. There's still debates going on right today among our leading nutritionists about the commonest of diseases which has huge health implications. Genomics may or may not uh, help us understand why more people become obese or not, but clearly the reason for it is to do with diets, junk food, etc., modern lifestyles, uh, much more than genomics. And the solutions are not going to come from more investment in gene sequencing. They're going to come from changes in lifestyle and so on. But the emphasis within medicine on that kind of thing is very low compared with the enormous expense and sophistication of research on genomics. So I see it more as a problem of distorted priorities mean, my, my own field, botany, plant development is where I started. Uh, there's no botany department left in Britain now. The last course in botany was in 2013. Bristol graduated the last group of botanists. They've now morphed into plant science departments where they're primarily about molecular biology and yeah. genomics.
0: Well, Most uh,
2: of the interest in botany is, is, is companies going out and trying to patent the gene that they find and saying we own this now. Yes, it's
3: all to do with... It's genomics has it's virtually yeah. taken over botany. As as an article I read last week said you can now get a first-class degree in plant sciences without being able to identify a single Uh, wildflower. So because the genomic, this molecular emphasis has has taken over biology. So those of us who are not into that, it's not really that it's wrong, bad, it's just that it's an
2: incredible distortion of priorities, that's the way I see it anyway. Should we move on to our final theme, which is r- really just looking ahead? Do we need to look beyond genes to explain life and for the future of health? And I, 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 su- I suppose let's start with you, Rupert. I mean, I think it's fair to say that the most powerful metaphor that genetics has been operating in is still the selfish gene. And are we all familiar with the selfish gene? Okay, good. We don't have to go over it again. Um, do you think we need to move beyond that? Do we need to find a, a leave that metaphor behind, does is it, is it, oh, it run its course? Do we, do we have a better one? It was always a terrible metaphor. I mean, it's, it sold lots of books, but it was never
3: a good metaphor. Genes can't be selfish, they're just molecules. Uh, Dawkins himself said this is a metaphor, but the entire persuasive force of his rhetoric is from the vitalist nature of this re- metaphor. Vitalism is a heresy in biology that that says um, that living organisms are truly alive as opposed to being... Inadimate, inanimate machines. And in, in biology, the very worst thing you can call someone, you know, you like calling them a racist or a fascist, is a vitalist. <laughs> and because living organisms are supposed to be inanimate machines that yep. you can grow in factory farms and genetically engineer. We are supposed to be machines, lumbering robots, to use Richard Dawkins' vivid phrase. And the idea is these machines are programmed by selfish genes terrible metaphors. Uh, but nevertheless, this is the way... You know, vitalism was saying, no, there's something more about life. Now, personally, I, I'm not a vitalist. I think there is something more about life, but I think there's something more about chemistry and physics as well. Um, so uh, that's uh, the name for that position is holistic or organismic. And so, uh, But the problem with vitalism uh, in, in its g- selfish gene form is that While ostensibly denying vitalism, uh, the selfish gene theory is essentially a vitalist theory. It attributes an all-powerful entelechy or vital essence to the genes which control matter, mold, form, dominate life, uh, compete like ruthless Chicago gangsters. These are all metaphors from Richard Dawkins. Um, which are all completely uh, irresponsible, in my opinion, and they persuade people because vitalism is much more persuasive than mechanism. So it's a dishonest form of rhetoric, in my opinion, and it's dominated thinking
2: for far too long, and it's never been true, and it's certainly time to move on. Uh, In defence of Richard, who I say I don't get on with, well, we get on and don't get on periodically, (laughs) depending on what question I ask him, he would be livid at the notion that he's a vitalist.
0: Even though you, you, you may, you may think y- yes, he is but not. He is. He is. <laughs> he, is. <laughs> he is. I don't Look have a ch- dog in this race. But okay. <laughs> Chapter ten. <laughs> poor old Chapter ten of oh, the selfish gene. He writes, and I can almost quote him. He says, "Let us therefore teach our children altruism, because we are born selfish." And then he goes on to an extraordinary statement. He goes on to say, and we are the only species that can do this. Now, that is precisely Cartesian dualism, which is a form of vitalism. There is no explanation of how we can frustrate the activity of our selfish genes. And there's a good reason for that. And here I have to disagree with you, Rupert, because um, he didn't say just that was a metaphor. In 1982 he responded in the journal Philosophy to Mary Midgley who wrote a criticism of the selfish gene. He said, that was no metaphor. I believe that it is the literal truth. He's changed his mind later, but now I want to give you the reason why he wrote it was not a metaphor. He said, provided you use words in the way in which biologists now use them. Now I ask you, what is a metaphor? (laughs)
2: All right. uh, uh, (laughs) 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 Poor old Richard. He always gets it I'm I'm not going to ask you to defend Richard. Right, I wouldn't. I
1: wouldn't anyway. No, I know.
2: Um, But (laughs) do you think we need to move beyond the genes to explain life?
1: So, um, it's, in terms of moving beyond what we've already what we already know, it was more. I was going to talk more about about pragmatic issues. We need to um, establish. We need to get uh, information of everybody, every one of you and your children and grandchildren, um, the genomic information into some ent- electronic medical uh, record database. Um, how also. Uh, we have to be able to. to we have to teach the um, the doctors and the nurses how to interpret the um, the information. I mean, that's what's critical right now. Um, at Imperial, we're actually running uh, courses on this because there is so much data, and we. It is very difficult for any of us to interpret the information right now. Um, and the other issue is about um, drug targets. So, just because you make a genetic discovery doesn't mean you have an easy target for a drug maker. But uh, this knowledge does give pharmaceutical scientists something to work with, and it will make a m- have a major impact on, on that as well. Um, so, so it's more pragmatic to me, and also the fact that we have a lot of big science now, as I said, and we do need more computational biologists. Um, more and more of them are coming into our field to deal with the complexity of the information that we have.
2: And there, ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid we'll have to leave it because we're out of time. Um, So it just remains to ask you if you would join me in thanking our panellists.
1: Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.